Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church this morning. As we begin, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your precious Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you sent him on our behalf and that he was willing to come. God became man and went to the cross for our sins. We thank you, Father, that after he was buried, you raised him from the dead. And we know from that that he is God. We also know from that that we are justified the moment we believe in him, declared righteous forever and receive eternal life. Father, we also thank you that you have given us a plan for our lives after we believe in your Son. We know that it's vital that we learn your word in order to understand how to live that life. We ask this morning, Father, that we can all concentrate and allow the Holy Spirit to teach us what is in the word this morning, and also that he would prepare us for using it and applying it to our daily lives. We also pray, Father, for the needs of the saints this morning, Father, both those who are here, the rest of our congregation, and around the country and the world. And we know that you are our Father and that you always have our best interests and all things are working together for good. Help us to understand that better and to trust you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us now stand and we'll sing a congregation song together. No. Now I am. We're still working out the bugs in this new place, you know. It's like, all right, again, a couple of announcements. Pastor Kingsley, many of you know him. He's planning a missionary trip to Johannesburg, South Africa in September. We ask that you please keep him in your prayers for much success in evangelizing and keep him safe and bring him home to his family. Also, again, this morning, remember that we are supporting the Healing Hands of Christ's Home for Lepers in India. Please pray this morning once again that the Lord remove the obstacle that we're facing that's been put up by the Indian government concerning our being able to send them finances because they're purchasing a new place for that home. So we please pray for that as well. Also, for those of you that are watching this morning on the live feed, we just ask that if you experience any problems, you let us know. Um, you can email us at that address, tech, T-E-C-H, at L-B-I-B-L-E dot org. Um, so if, if, you can't, if the sound is too low or so forth, if, um, if for some reason when we were singing the song this morning it cut out on you on the video, then let us know that too. <laughs> All right, just having some fun. All right, this, this morning's message, please turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 12. Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 12, and we will begin. The title of today's message comes from the passage that we're studying this morning. The Father will give you another helper. The Father will give you another helper. John 14, 12. John 14, 12. The Lord speaking here, continuing to speak to his disciples in the upper room the night before he's going to the cross. And he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these will he do because I go to the Father. Remember, we saw that the works are greater because of the purpose and because of the enablement and because of the extent to which the church can bring the good news of the gospel to the known world. Jesus does all the works, but he works through us now. He's in heaven. Holy Spirit's here on earth. Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name. Remember that expression, in my name, is the key to understanding this. What it meant was that you've come to know Jesus Christ enough so that you understand whether or not what you're asking would be according to his thinking. And, of course, his thinking is to always glorify the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we saw last week that to love somebody according to what God thinks, according to what Jesus Christ thinks, is to give and act sacrificially for their benefit. Jesus certainly did that for us. And he's asking us to do the same for others. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's just a statement of fact. Love and obedience go together, whether it's in marriage or in the relationship we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 16, and I will ask the Father, And he will give you another helper. The Greek word for that is what we'll be focusing on this morning. It's the word parakletos, translated here, helper. That that he, the helper, may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive 
because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. If anybody needs a Bible this morning, just please raise your hand and we'll have somebody bring it to you. That way we're all studying the same word together. It's good to see it in writing as well as to hear it. So if anybody needs it, just raise your hand and uh, Jack or, or, or Calvin can bring you a Bible. We've now completed our work on the first three amazing statements here that Jesus makes in this passage. That we will do greater works than he because he has gone to the Father. That when we pray according to the thinking of Jesus Christ so that the Father is glorified, we ask what we ask will be granted by the Lord. And, and to love him is to keep his commandments. And the greatest commandment that he mentions several times in this passage is to love one another in the same way that he has loved us. So those are the first three amazing statements that Jesus makes in this passage. This morning, we're going to look at, begin to look at the last one, which has to do with that other helper, God the Holy Spirit, and the fact that he is and again, given to the apostles and to us in a manner far exceeding anything that the Old Testament saints ever experienced in the terms of the, the, how, the, how the Holy Spirit worked with them, dealt with them. What we have is far greater than that. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, what's interesting is, is that as, this is a power-packed six verses. Okay, He introduces four great, great, amazing things here. And what he's going to do is he's going to continue to talk about those things. And he's going to build and develop those things. So it's here, as it were, as a, in seed form, as a bud, and, and he's going to take that and he's going to develop it to full flower. He introduces each of these. We're going to take a look at a minute at how, how he's working that. We've seen this already with the subject of prayer. So what happens here is that what appears as a new bud, this is new. Everything he says here is new. The fact that, that the, the disciples and us will do greater works than he even he did. And remember, we saw that, that miracles are amazing to the human eye, but what, what he allows us to do is far greater than that. Why? Because we're preaching the good news, the new message, by the way, the new things that Paul um, re- revealed to us through, the, through Jesus Christ revealing it to him. So that's an amazing thing. That's new. This idea that whatever we ask in his name, he will grant, that's new. The new commandment that we love one another as he has loved us, that's new. And this morning, the way in which he tells us about how the Holy Spirit is going to come is new. Okay, so he, so he, he plants those seeds, four of them, and there's a, there's a new bud, as it were. But he's going, to, he's going to continue to talk about it, and our understanding of it and the disciples' understanding will grow to the fullness. And then, of course, when the Holy Spirit comes, even more so. So I want to show you that with the subject of prayer. In verses 13 to 14, again, he says, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So in verses 13 through 14, Jesus proclaims that prayer in his name will be granted. Prayer in his name, again, according to how he thinks, knowing that whatever it is we're asking is according to his will and the Father's will, because we've come to know him, he will grant. Well, it turns out that he is going to continue to return to this subject several times. In John chapter 15 and John chapter 16, I'd like you to turn now to the Gospel of John chapter 15. Gospel of John chapter 15, verse 7. No, it's funny. The reason I asked whether anybody needed a Bible this morning is I saw a few people that, to me, didn't appear to have one. But then I realized that, the, that the, they're using their, their phone, and their phone is low down, and so I can't see it. Man, my job just got tougher, but that's okay. <laughs> and you don't have to, by the way. There's some people that just like to listen, so, and I, I, I give, them, give you that option if that's you as well, of course. All right, John 15, 7. Again, the subject that he introduced... In our main passage is asking for something in his name, and he will grant it. But I want you to look at, oops, 
I want you to look at the next passage in John 15 there where he brings up this subject once again. He's going to develop it. Okay, watch. John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. See, that's new. What does he say? Once again, though, he repeats the fact that ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. I want you to notice that this is different. It's the same subject, asking in prayer and having it done for us. But he's, he's said other things here that he didn't say the first time. The main thing is he adds this new element, which is abiding in him. Now, we know that at the moment we believe in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, as it were, it's called baptizes us into Christ. It means that we're in him. We're in union with him forever. Okay, But abiding is something different from that. What abiding is, is that in our daily lives, right, we're sharing that with him and how we think. And, how, and he says that the word is going to be established in our hearts. His love, when we obey his commands, that's abiding in him. That's growing in him. That's living our lives according to how he would want us. That's what abiding is. It has to do with a daily relationship with the Lord. Okay. Similarly, we know that he's in us. That's another miraculous thing that the Paul reveals, especially that Jesus Christ is, dwells in us. And, and in the book of Colossians, Paul says that Jesus in us is the hope of great glory. And that can never be taken away. That's part of our eternal security. By the way, once you believe in Jesus Christ, the things that God does at that instant are irreversible. They'll never be taken away. He gives you eternal life the moment you believe. Nothing will ever take that away. Nothing you do, nothing that happens to you, nothing can ever take that from you. Jesus says that we're in the hands of the Father and nothing can get us out. Okay, One of those things that he does as an, as a, that is a permanent thing is that Jesus comes to dwell in us, as does the Holy Spirit. Those things are permanent. They'll never be taken away. Okay. So he adds these new elements, abiding. Now, when he says abide in him, okay, I'm not going to work this all out for you, but you have to take me at my word. He's talking about his love. He's saying, when you abide in my love, when you understand how I sacrifice for you, when you understand that the Father loves you so much that he gave me, Jesus said, and I died for you, when you start to understand that such that it turns into your obedience, that you, that you genuinely want to know what Jesus Christ thinks and what he's asking of you and indeed commanding you. And out of that love, you want to be obedient to him. Okay? And not only that, but his words abide in us. You see, that's the key, right? We looked at the fact that it, asking something in his name means that we can go to our storehouse of knowledge and our relationship to him that's developed on the basis of us learning more and more about him in the word of God. See, the word of God is what? Living and active. And it's where we go to learn more and more about him. Like Paul said in Philippians 3, where he said that I, Paul, who have been saved for 20 years, who have had this amazing revelation about Jesus Christ, I still want to get to know him better. Okay? So, but how do we do that? By his words abiding in us. So he's saying, when you're in that situation of dwelling in my love, of, of living a life, of, of living a life that loves other people, of living a life where our relationship with the Lord grows, and when we continue to have his word, and remember, as we, as we hear the word and believe it, the Holy Spirit is also at work in us to change us. In, in that situation, now... Whatever we ask will be done. Now, I want you to notice what he says, though. Notice the first time he said, what? Whatever you ask in my name, didn't he? Whatever you ask in my name. Well, here, we don't see that anymore, do we? What, do we, what does he put here instead of asking in my name? Well, in the asking part, the second half of that verse. Ask in my name? Whatever you wish. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? When we live out the love that he has for us in in, in loving one another, when we have his word dwelling richly in us, what happens is we get changed. Our desires change. We're, We're lining up more and more with the desires of Christ to glorify the Father. 
It's so what happens is, is that now in our experience, no longer are we, and it's good to do this, by the way, focused on asking that question. Is what I'm asking going to glorify the Father? Because it's part of us. And now, as it were, he can trust us that our very desires, our very wishes will be according to his name. And that's why he says it differently here. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. He adds this new idea of abiding in his love, his words abiding in us. All right, let's continue. Let's go now to John chapter 15, verse 16. Just go a few verses down. Again, the subject is asking and receiving from the Lord and actually from his Father who will grant these things to you. John fifteen sixteen. Jesus says to them, you did not choose me. He, we didn't choose him, by the way. He chose us. That's an important thing to understand. It's a gracious thing, isn't it? See, if we think that we have to choose him, on the one hand, it's, a, it's very arrogant. Because remember, before we became a believer, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Right? So, so we, we, first, he chooses us. He comes to us. He, he has the word of God in the form of the gospel preached to us. Not only that, but even after we're believers. Now remember, he's talking in here in the upper room with his closest disciples. All but one are believers in him. The one who isn't, Judas, remember, is gone. So he's talking with believers who have been with him for three and a half years. And he's saying, I chose you. Now he didn't only choose them in the sense of calling them to him and having the gospel preached. But he also chose them for a special purpose. By the way, that's the real meaning of, of election in the Bible, okay? It's not election to be saved, okay? It is election for a purpose after you're a believer in Christ. I chose you, and notice I appointed you, what? That you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Same subject, asking and having something given to us, but new things that are added. What's added here? Well, here Jesus connects answered prayer to fruit. To fruit. Now, he's not talking about pears and oranges and apples. He's talking about in our lives, right, he's working in us, and that there's production out of that. See, fruit, if you think about it, fruit on a tree, what happens? It grows the tree, and then all of a sudden it's productive. And by the way, when a, free, when a, when a tree produces fruit, like apples on a tree or pears or oranges, it doesn't turn around and take it by the branches and eat it, right? Have you ever seen a tree do that? No, what is it? It's there for others. The same thing for us. The fruit that the Lord is talking about here that abides is the fruit of, of being obedient to his commandments and living them out in our lives, okay? That your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. So I hope you can see the development here from the first time he talks about answered prayer in his name. And then he adds to that the idea of abiding. Then he adds to that fruit. He's always adding things to it. I want you to see one more. And that's in John 16. Notice we're moving through this passage. We started in chapter 14. We've now been in chapter 15. And we're headed to chapter 16, John 16, 23. In that day, that's the key to understanding what he's now going to say about answered prayer. In that day. See, a day is coming. A day is coming after Jesus dies and is raised from the dead. In that day, he will have ascended into heaven and be seated at the right hand of the Father. In that day, he will send the Holy Spirit. And in that day, there's a new manner in which our prayer lives are developed. You see that our prayer life as believers in Christ, listen to this, is greater even than the prayer life of the apostles. Even than that. And the reason, the main, there's two reasons, but the main one is that we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts. Okay, Because of that, when that day came. Now, historically, you can read about the first time that happened in the book of Acts chapter 2. When Peter now has been emboldened. He, was, he and, the, and the 
apostles were frightened, scared, and then the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And now they're emboldened. And then Peter goes out. And the indication at that point that the Holy Spirit had come upon them and was in them was, of course, a miraculous demonstration of them being able to speak in other languages that they didn't know. Now, don't expect that to happen. Okay? Don't think that, you know, I don't have the Spirit yet because I can't speak French, Italian, and uh, Somali or whatever, right? It doesn't happen anymore. Okay. Why? Well, because those things are one-time events to teach, to get people to understand, yes, this really happened. See, the indwelling of the Spirit is not visible. You can't see it. So for the benefit of the people, the first time he comes, he does something miraculous. Miracles in the Bible are always that way. When the Lord was, was birthing the nation of Israel... He gave Moses the ability to perform great miracles. When he was introducing the error of the prophets, he gives Elijah the ability to perform great miracles. He didn't give that to Isaiah or Jeremiah. He gave it to the first one. When Jesus came, and for the first time ever, God became man, there were great miracles associated with the birth of Jesus Christ, and indeed his whole life, because he was coming as the Messiah who had been prophesied in the Old Testament, but now he's here. In the same way, once Jesus goes to the Father and the Holy Spirit comes, now for a period of time, when the, when the, when the apostles are preaching the gospel, when the church is being formed, the church is being born, now miracles accompany the preaching of the apostles. Okay, Not today. This is where I think people get it wrong because they go to the book of Acts and they see the spectacular and the miraculous. But that's attention getting, by the way, for those who are babies in their faith. Let me put it that way. And we need that. You know, just like, just like little children need, need big events. They're fascinated by things they've never seen before. Okay, but that's not us. You see, we have been given the revelation of the word of God now. We don't need that. We ought not to have to need that. Because there's greater things going on in our hearts. Greater things than any miracle. But in any event, the Holy Spirit comes to them, and that's that new day in verse 23. And that day, you won't question me about anything. We're going to see this morning that he tells them, he's going to send the Holy Spirit to them. And it's interesting. We'll see this when we go back to our main passage this morning. But he keeps emphasizing that the Holy Spirit will teach you all things. And we'll see what that means this morning. But because we're be, we, they and we are taught all things because of the Holy Spirit, we don't, they wouldn't have to question Jesus. See, Jesus on earth had a ministry, had a relationship with them. But Jesus in heaven, by the way, has a far greater ministry to us. And sending the Holy Spirit here on earth, the Holy Spirit has an amazing ministry to us. And so, so we get our, ans- our questions answered through the word of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And once again, our subject, truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, now he's, of course, talking to the disciples, you have asked for nothing in my name. Why? Well, for one thing, he hadn't told them that they have that capability. And for another thing, they were still getting to know him. And they, hadn't ha- they don't have at this point the Holy Spirit indwelling them. But that will change. Until now, verse 24, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive. And then notice the purpose here. That your joy may be made full. When he first introduces it, Remember, the purpose was that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Here he adds something. There's a development. You see, he's saying, when in that day when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you and you can understand things about me, Jesus is saying that you couldn't understand when I was on earth. In that day, your joy will be made full by you asking for things in Jesus' name. I want you to think about that in your own life. I want you to think about your prayer life. I want you to think about when you ask for something and you, you have a good sense that it's according to the will of God. Okay? There are some things, by the way, you ask for that are automatically the will of God. For example, 
the Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish. So when you pray that someone could hear the gospel and believe it, right, that's according to his will. Now, I'm not saying everybody will, 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 will believe based on that prayer, but what I am saying is that he will, he will go to work in another way, that the Holy Spirit will see this in chapter 16. It's the Holy Spirit's job, by the way, to prepare somebody to believe in Jesus Christ, to prepare them. You see, that happens first. Our job is to communicate the good news. You see that? So there are some things that we know are according to the will of God. Other things we don't know are according to the will of God. We do our best to pray for things that we think are in the best interest of somebody or even that we think might be in the will of God. But there's many times we don't know that. How do we know it, though? How do we know the things that are according to the will of God? Right back to the same thing. The Bible tells us so. The Bible tells us what the will of God is. By the way, the Bible tells us that it's his will that we be sanctified. What does that mean? That we would, we would grow, that our righteousness in terms of our daily lives would grow, right? that, that we would put to death the deeds of the body. So when you, when you pray for that in your lives... Okay, there, there's a much better chance that that prayer is going to be answered, for example. Okay, so the key is to, is to continue and have the word of God dwell in you richly. So again, verse 24, until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, and now there's a new reason, so that your joy may be made full. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you in figurative language up until now, he says, but an hour is coming. The day is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. Why? Verse 27. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. What does he add here to the subject of answered prayer? that there's going to be a new day. You see, there's a new day that will arrive and that will revolutionize our prayer life. That's what he's saying. He's saying that the Father will give you what you ask for so that your joy may be made full. That's a new day. But not only that, notice that he says, answered prayer, right? He finally gets to the heart of it, to the root of it, to have it, see where it is grounded, where it ultimately comes from, and that is the love of the Father. The love of the Father. When, when, when we pray for things that are according to what we know is stems from the love of the Father, okay, that, that, is the, that is where answered prayer really comes from. When we pray on Thursday evenings and we ask for things, one of the, thing, one of the appeals that we often make is the fact that he's our Father and he loves us and there's nothing that he'll ever give us that won't be for our benefit. We finally rest on that. And when we pray that way, okay, that prayer will always be answered, by the way. It will always be answered. But, it, but it's a new way of praying, you see. We're not praying any longer for this or for that or for this particular illness to go away. We're praying for the fact that we know, Father, that your will, your plan for us is far greater than anything we could ever ask for. That we know that all things are working together for good. And Father, we just leave it in your hands and we pray and we ask and we're assured that ultimately, no matter what actually happens, it, it is for our good. You see, when we pray that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened, that prayer is going to be answered. One of, the, one of the great ways to understand how to revolutionize your prayer life is to find the prayers that the apostles pray. For example, you go to Paul and you say, what prayers did he pray in the book of Ephesians? Then check it out. I just recited one. That the eyes of our heart may be enlightened, that we may know the hope of his glory. See, those are the prayers that he answers directly. Okay. So why? Because prayer is ultimately grounded in the love of the Father. Ultimately, we're going to him as his children. We know he loves us. And so this is, this is the new thing. He says, the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. Answered prayer is finally revealed to be rooted and grounded in the love of the Father. So I hope you can see that development. 
of this subject that he introduces in one, two verses in chapter 14. Okay. He continues to do that. Okay. As a matter of fact, we're about to go into the fourth and final new revelation in that passage that I read this morning. And that is the gift, the gift of the indwelling spirit. It's a gift. We don't earn or deserve it. It comes to us the moment we believe in Jesus Christ. In the book of Galatians, Paul reminds the Galatian church that they received the Spirit by faith, not by anything they did. So it's a pure gift from the Lord. And it's revolutionary. It's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, as believers, perhaps you for many years have known that as a, as a, as a truth, right? That the Holy Spirit indwells you. But what we need to do is to continue to, to develop our understanding of what that means in our lives. What, what's already happened to us. What will happen to us. Why he's there now. What he's doing for us on a daily basis. What he did for us the moment we were saved. What he's doing now. And the purpose of it. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna start to cover that this morning and the time we have that remains this morning. So the gift of the indwelling spirit is the fourth and final new thing that Jesus reveals to the apostles in that upper room in our passage. I'd like to go back now to that passage. Please go to John chapter 14, verse 16. John chapter 14, verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Now, the Greek word for that is parakletos. I'm going to give you the spelling. and I'm not going to give you the Greek spelling, but I'm going to give you the English, what we call transliteration, which means if you turn the Greek letters into English letters, and so you can see how it's pronounced and so forth. I'm going to give you that. And there's a reason why I'm mentioning it that way here. Okay, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. The reason why we've got to go to the Greek on this is because of the limitations of the English language to get at the full meaning of what the Greek word means. You know, if I say a helper today, what does that bring to mind to you? Does that bring to mind the power of God in our English language? No, it means I'm doing the main thing and I need a little help. You know, I'm the carpenter and I need a guy next to me to hand me the nails. That's, what, that's our English understanding of it. Same thing with comforter which is another translation that was used in the past, by the way, when that word had a different meaning than it does today, you see. So what I'm saying is, is that in this particular case, the, the translations that people have made, where they try to translate one Greek word into one English word, is simply not adequate to cover the full meaning of what this word is, when it's tied, by the way, to the Holy Spirit. Again, I will ask the Father, he will give you another parakletos, that he may be with you forever. That is, identity equals that other parakletos is the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. Notice that he emphasizes truth here, because that's foremost, you see. The thing that, that the disciples needed after Jesus left was truth, was information, was facts. It's the same thing for us. The thing that we really need in order to live the way that God has intended is information, is truth, facts. The, far, the great majority of Christians today are ignorant of the facts about who they are. All right? There's a, I like those bookshelves that are back, right? In our old place, we didn't have that, couldn't do that. But, but over here, there's a list of things that define who we are. Okay, there's a little paper over here. I think I can move around. Yeah, the thing I like about wireless microphones is I'm not tethered to anything. I can move around. Yeah, here we go. It's on the website who you are, what it means to be a Christian. These are all facts. This is all scripture. But here's the thing. If you don't know those things, your Christian life is going to be impoverished. You're going to think it's things like, you know, being against abortion. That's being a Christian, for example. I'm not, I'm not weighing in on that, but I'm saying that that has really very little to do with being a Christian. You know, getting together and, uh, and having a certain kind of movement that's associated with maybe the miraculous. People think that that's a Christian. 
Or maybe it's like your morality as a Christian. I got to tell you about morality. It is true, by the way, that part of the way in which the Holy Spirit is working in our lives is to put to death the deeds of the flesh and our, our lives will have a morality that the world recognizes. But this Christian spiritual life goes way beyond that. And we saw that with respect to comparing the law to grace, right? Okay, most people out there, most Christians today, tie morality into, let's say, the Ten Commandments. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, yes, we should love the Lord our God with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength. We shouldn't commit adultery. We shouldn't covet other people's things. We shouldn't steal. We shouldn't murder. Those are all true. That's morality. Now, the thing about it is, is that if you were to look at the United States Code of Law, it's all in there. Now, is the United States, I'm going to get in trouble with this, is the United States a Christian government? No. Is it a Christian nation? No. Are there, are there Christians in the United States? Yes. Were there, were there many in the founding of this country that were Christians? Yes. Was the leadership of the, of the Revolutionary War and those who got together to write the Constitution, were they Christians by and large? No. <laughs> Surprise. No, they weren't. They weren't. They were what's called deists. That's why if you read it, it talks about the, the, cre- the, the creator of the God of nature, right? I, I'm not here to talk about government. But the point is, is that so many people misunderstand and have a very narrow understanding of what it means to be a Christian because they don't have the facts and it's their own fault. Because the, you know, how many people this morning have this book in front of you, right? That's why I keep emphasizing it. You know what this is full of? Facts. Not opinions, facts. And if we want to understand the facts that identify who we are as members of the body of Christ, we go to the epistles. Say so almost to the end, right? Romans and Corinthians and Ephesians and so forth. Why? Because those are the facts about who we are. Information, truth. Verse 17, that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Why? Why can't the world receive the spirit of truth? Well, it's built into the, what the world means. Remember, when, many times in the word of God, and almost always in the gospel of John, the world has to do with the unbeliever in rebellion against God. That's what it now. So automatically, if they're in rebellion against God, they don't go to the word of God to, to, to understand their relationship to this world. And, and not only that, but this world is materialistic. In other words, it runs on what, what people can see, taste, covet, and so forth, right? That the Spirit has nothing to do with that. See, the, the Spirit is invisible. Therefore, the world can't possibly receive the Holy Spirit because it doesn't see Him. It doesn't know Him. But you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. This is the fourth thing that Jesus reveals to the apostles that night in the upper room before he's going to go to the cross that's revolutionary and new, and they'd never heard it before. And I I dare say they were probably very surprised when they heard it the first time. Okay, so in order to start to make sense of what we have here and to see the the brilliance of it and the all-encompassing nature of what Jesus is saying, we need to examine that phrase, another helper. Another helper. Recall the context now. What's the context? Jesus is with his disciples. They're in the upper room. It's the night before he's going to die on the cross. He's just finished telling them some things before chapter 14. For example, he tells them that Peter is going to betray him. No, Peter is going to deny him three times. He says that there's one among them who's going to betray them. But the thing that, that grieved them the most was this. He told them that he was going to leave them soon. A day would soon come when he would no longer be on earth with them. Their hearts were full of sorrow because of that. Now, not only did he say he was going to leave them, he says, you're not going to be able to come where I'm going. I will no longer be on earth, and you can't come to where I am yet. That was upsetting to them. Their hearts became full of sorrow. 
So when we turn to chapter 14, what's happening? Jesus is now setting about trying to comfort them, trying to reassure them, trying to give them information and hope and good news. That's why he talks about all those things. You know, it's, isn't it good news that, that we're going to be able to do greater works than Jesus did when he was here on earth? That's exciting. That gives you a reason to live. The fact that, that even though Jesus isn't on earth with them anymore, he is with the Father, and he's there going to advocate for them with the Father. And so as it were, then the Holy Spirit's going to come here on earth. So as it were, they got a double dose here. Jesus isn't dead. He's very much alive. He's just in heaven. But he has a ministry to them in heaven. He's advocating for them. But not only that, but the Holy Spirit is here on earth. So we get the benefit of both. That's good news. That's hopeful. That's encouraging. So that's what he's doing. He's trying to deal with the fact that they're, they're emotionally spent. They're discouraged by knowing that he's not going to be with them much longer. So, so Jesus says, I am going to address that now. I'm going to address that now. So when he says another helper, as what he says, what is he saying? Well, first of all, if you say there's another helper coming, what does that assume? There's one already, right? There's one already. Now there's another one, right? Well, who's been their helper on earth? Jesus Christ. Okay, we're going to see the word again in the richness of the Greek. means teacher and guide and encourager and all of those things that we're going to see that word means. He was all of that to them. But then he's going to go away until another one is going to take his place. Since he's leaving to go to the Father in heaven, He's going to ask the Father when he gets there. He's going to ask the Father to send another parakletos to be with them and indeed in them. In them. So that's the situation we have here. But what does he mean by that word helper or in the Greek parakletos? And again, John didn't write in English. You know, Paul didn't write the Bible with the King James Version. A lot of people think, oh, that's the original. No, it's not. It's one of many translations. But the, the original text of the Bible, the New Testament, is in Greek. And so the fact is that for the particular Greek word that stands behind the English word translated here as helper, translators have struggled again and again and again to come up and find the equivalent English word. They haven't done very well either. You know, one of the reasons you, you can tell when a Greek word is troublesome for the translators is just to look at a few translations. And when you do that and you see, wait a minute, in this translation here in verse 16, it says comforter. And then you bring out another one. It says advocate. And you bring out another one and it says counselor. And another one and it says, and you're saying, what's going on here? What's going on here is that the translators are having a tough time really getting at the meaning of this word. Yeah, I mean, the translation is not inspired, by the way. Did you know that? I don't mean to, like, blow your minds this morning. I think a lot of you know that. But the Greek text is inspired. Now, the translations, of course, are because we don't, most of us don't speak Greek or read Greek. And as a matter of fact, it was the Greek of 2,000 years ago. God knows that, and he preserves his word. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with many of the translations. There is a lot wrong with some of them. There are some what are called paraphrases. And what it basically, what it boils down to is the translator's opinion about what sounds good in terms of what that verse means. No, you don't want that. But the New American Standard, yes. The English Standard Version, pretty good. The King James, good. As you know that, there are times when I go to the King James because it's the best one. Now, why do I say that? Well, I say that because of the Greek language that's behind it. Okay. But translators do struggle, and this is one place where they do. Now, those translations aren't wrong. I mean, the, the Holy Spirit is the helper, rightly understood that word. He is the comforter. He is our advocate. He is our counselor. So those translations aren't wrong. It's that they're simply inadequate. Inadequate. It's kind of like if somebody forced you to take a person that you love 
and just describe them in one word, think about how tough that would be. Think about how tough that would be. Somebody you've known for 30 years, maybe. And they say, no, all you can have is one word. It's impossible. There's many words that you want to say about that person. Well, it's the same thing here. It's the same thing here. Any one word as a translation is simply inadequate. Because the Greek word can mean everything that I just mentioned. It can mean helper. It can mean counselor. But it can mean all those things and more. And that's why we have to go to the Greek. Well, the Greek word here is parakleton. Now, I, of course, have been saying parakletos. Well, the reason for that is, is that uh, the Greek word here is what's called the accusative. Okay, you don't have to know that. But it's just like a lot of English words too, right? We, depending, on, depending on where it is in terms of the grammar, we might translate, for example, you might say he, right? He is here. But then when you say, I love him, wait a minute, that's a different word. Well, not really, right? Same thing here. But the root word is parakletos. If you were to go into what's called a lexicon, which is, which is trying to define in English what the Greek word means, right? You would see that word, parakletos. So that's the word I'm going to give you. Now, what does that word mean? What does that word mean? I want to give you a general sort of overview, and that is one who is called in to appear on someone else's behalf. That's what the Greek, in other words, if you were to go back to other Greek writings of the time, when Paul and John and the rest of the writers of the New Testament were writing, and you would ask, well, what did it mean in the Greek that they used at that time? It would be this, one who was called in to appear on someone else's behalf. By the way, often in the, in the culture of the time, it was, it was used in a legal sense. It was used that someone's in court, and a parakletos would be somebody who would come in and speak on behalf of the defendant. Or it would be the actual attorney that was arguing the case. But not always. You see, it had different meanings depending on what? The context. The purpose. And that's the thing to understand about this word. And that's why translators have a difficult time when the parakletos in question is the Holy Spirit. Because the specific meaning, the meaning in a particular text, depends on why the person is called in, right? Maybe the person is called in to perform CPR because the defendant is can't, you know, having a heart attack. I mean, I'm exaggerating. But when you have a, somebody called in on behalf of somebody else, what it really means is all dependent on the reason why they were called in. So then when you think about the Holy Spirit now, and you ask, okay, so what's the reason why the Holy Spirit is called in? What's the reason why the Holy Spirit is, has been sent to us? What's the reason why the Holy Spirit indwells us? You see, th- there's a lot there, and it can't translate that into one word. So the fact is, as we see from verse 17, the parakletos here is none other than the Holy Spirit. And the fact is that the Holy Spirit meets all kinds of needs for the believers in the church age, in the church. So if it's someone called in to appear on someone else's behalf and the Holy Spirit has been sent by the Father at the request of Jesus on our behalf, and the question is, is, well, what is it that the Holy Spirit does on our behalf? And that's a huge question. You know, I, in preparing for today, I studied each verse in the New Testament that mentions the Holy Spirit. And I kept a list of things that the Spirit provides believers. Well, I stopped counting when the list reached 40. 40 different things that the New Testament says that the Holy Spirit provides us. So you can see why even more that's so difficult to translate that word. Translators can't boil down all the ministries of the Spirit down to one word. It's absolutely impossible. Now, here's the thing. You might get the picture now that, wow, there's all these things that he's doing. You know, maybe he's pulled in all kinds of directions. Maybe he's unfocused. Well, there's nothing of the sort. You see, he has all kinds of functions, all kinds of things he provides, but there's something that is singular, and that's his mission. 
He has one mission. This is the uniting factor of the Holy Spirit. We need to understand this. We need, uh, uh, the first thing that we ought to understand about the Holy Spirit in the church is that he's got a single mission. It's to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember, when, when we've, we've been studying the Gospel of John, the fact that God the Father sent Jesus Christ, and what was his mission? To glorify the Father, you see? So now this continues. Now Jesus is in heaven like the Father was when he sent Jesus. And now Jesus is sending the Holy Spirit. And now the Holy Spirit's job is to glorify Jesus. Not to bring attention to himself, by the way, which is where the Pentecostal church goes, gets it all wrong. They put all the emphasis on the Holy Spirit for the Holy Spirit's sake. And the Holy Spirit is not here for his own sake. He's here to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ through the church. The Holy Spirit doesn't work through the world, doesn't work through technology, doesn't work through governments. It works through the church. Members of the body of Christ, the one body of Christ, made up of all believers in Christ in this age. That's how he works. That's how he glorifies the Father. In the book of Ephesians chapter 3, Paul tells us, and this is facts that we need to know to understand the grandeur of this church that we're a part of, this body that we're all individually members of. Today, the, the, the Father is using the church to broadcast his glory to the angels in heaven. That ought to give you a reason to wake up in the morning, huh? That ought to give you a reason to be motivated, to be obedient, to loving one another as he has loved us. That ought to give you a reason to want to understand that you've been given a particular manifestation of the Spirit for the common good of the body of Christ. There's a great mission here. And the Spirit's mission is to glorify Jesus Christ, not himself, but through the church. Through the church. I hope see that hopefully that information will, will will maybe change how you look at the church. A lot of people say, when they say the church, they might think of the Catholic Church. Other people, when you say the word church, they think of a building. Other people think of stuffy people who just want to judge other people. None of those things is true. The thing about the church that makes it unique is that we're all members of the body of Jesus Christ as believers in Christ, and we have a mission, and that mission is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is here to help us in every way that we need in order to fulfill that mission. So that part is singular. However, the provision he gives us varies. How does it vary? It varies according to the specific need at hand. Next week, we're going to look in the book of Acts, as well as in the New Testament epistles, to understand this understand the provisions that the Holy Spirit provides the church, both individuals and as a body. And, it's going to, and it turns out that in carrying out this mission, we will always have needs. And that's the Holy Spirit's job, is to provide us the needs. Now, not, not the needs, like we may, again, we may think of it on a natural way and say, well, I have a need for more money, or I have a need for food, or I have a need for a spouse. And that, there's nothing wrong with those needs. They're real. And God in his plan, you know, he says not to worry because he's going to provide all of that. But that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about the Holy Spirit. Remember, it's, we're talking about the needs that we have in connection with our mission to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, we all have our own different functions in that mission, right? And so let's say, for example, your calling, your gift is financial in nature. Well, of course, the Holy Spirit isn't in charge of giving you the money. Actually, that's the Father, by the way, who's doing that. But the Holy Spirit is there to encourage you, to give you the confidence, the faith, the trust, to be able to take things, maybe a lot of money, and just give it to, to other people that need it, for example. Or maybe your calling is to be an evangelist. You're going to have a lot of needs in inner needs when you're you know it's very easy when when an evangelist is out there and preaching the gospel and being rejected maybe even being persecuted that person has a lot of needs for encouragement for hope for inspiration that's what the holy spirit does and so the provision that he gives the members of the body of christ varies according to the specific need at hand 
He provides whatever is needed to accomplish the mission. Could be comfort. Could be discernment. Boy, we have a big need for that today. It could be teaching. Big need for that. Counsel. Advice. Guidance. We're always searching for guidance. Now, when it comes to the mission of the church, it's the same thing. We may reach a fork in the road where we need guidance. You as an individual may need guidance, for example, on how you should best use the particular gift or manifestation of the Spirit. We need guidance. We need strength at various times. We need encouragement. And that's just a few of the things that we need. As we close today, let's turn to the Scriptures to begin to get a better understanding of this point, that the Holy Spirit's provision varies according to the specific need at hand. We'll start back with our with our verse that we that we are a main verse John chapter 14 verse 16 John 14:16 And I will ask the Father and he will give you another paracletos that he may be with you forever Why is it so important that Jesus emphasizes here with those people with their need forever. Well, what's their great need now? They, they need reassurance because Jesus is not going to be with them on earth forever. But there's somebody else who will be here forever. Okay? And that's the Holy Spirit that, that he may be with you forever. Verse 17. That is the Spirit of truth. Spirit is called many different things. The spirit of grace, the spirit of God. But here, there's something emphasized because of the need of these apostles. And that is what? Truth. Whom the world cannot receive because it doesn't see him or know him. But you know him. There's that reassurance. You already know him. Why? Because he abides with you already. He's invisible, but he's been here all along. And even more amazing, he will be in you. Can't get any closer than that. Okay, so what needs does the Holy Spirit, the Paracletos, meet in these two verses? Well, I've kind of summarized it for you, but let me walk through it, and you can see it in writing. First, he will be with the disciples forever. That is a great comfort to them. They need to hear that at that moment. By the way, not only is that true for them, it's true for us. The gift of the Holy Spirit we will never lose. Now, the way that's, that is something that, from the Old Testament point of view, is a revolutionary concept. You know, if you were to go, and I told you I looked at all the verses in the Bible that have the Spirit capitalized. If you were to look at the Old Testament, okay, it's somewhat limited. The only certain individuals would have the Holy Spirit come to them. And it was for a specific purpose. It wasn't permanent. It was temporary. Now, Jesus is telling them that when the Holy Spirit comes to you and it dwells you, it'll be permanent. You know, a million years from now when we're in heaven, the Holy Spirit will still indwell us. Certainly while we're here on earth and Jesus is absent physically, he'll always be with us. By the way, that, I don't want to get into this, maybe I will, that, that shows you the lie of people that says you can lose the Holy Spirit. You can lose the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's absolutely not true. Why? Because the very purpose of the Spirit is to be with us all the time, forever. That is, the spirit of truth whom the world can't receive because it does not know him or see him. Second, therefore, the parakletos is the source of truth. He's going to emphasize later on all truth, things that they couldn't understand. How often did we see when we were looking at the Gospel of John in the earlier chapters, things that Jesus said that they misinterpreted and didn't understand and went the wrong way. They thought he'd be talking about physical food and he was talking about spiritual food. They thought he was talking about the physical temple and he was talking about his body. We saw that over and over again. They misunderstood. They weren't capable of knowing the truth at the time, but they will when the Holy Spirit indwells their hearts. The parakletos is the source of truth, and the apostles in the upper room needed that. Third, they already know this person. He's been with them. He's already abiding with them. That's a comfort, too. They may not have realized it in the moment, when they're discouraged and upset and worried about what's going to happen next when Jesus leaves, what's going to happen to him, what's going to happen to us. It's very easy to forget this. By the way, the church has forgotten this by and large. 
You know, the whole, th- th- I mean, there's people that say, well, I went to that service today and man, the spirit was there in a powerful way. I'm going back to that building because that's where the spirit is. No, the spirit is with you, in you, always. We need to have that reminder as well. And then fourth, he will permanently indwell, permanently, each and every believer in Jesus Christ. And again, this is where we'll have to stop this morning. But that's a radically new concept for the, for the apostles, for the disciples. They were schooled, as it were, in the Old Testament to various degrees. That was their frame of reference for who God is and who the Spirit is. And I mentioned this, I'll mention it again as we close this morning. When the Spirit appeared in the Old Testament, you know, he, he, is, he appeared in the book of Exodus. But he came upon, came upon certain craftsmen for a certain purpose because of their, their particular role in crafting things that would represent God and represent the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So the Spirit was with them for that. The Spirit was with prophets when they were prophesying, but not everybody. The, the large, large majority of Jewish believers in the Old Testament, it's never said of them that the Spirit came upon them. That's one thing. But also, not temporary here, but permanent, permanent. And that's the other thing. Remember, we can, we can get used to these kind of things, but when we need that, when we're going to see the next week, the kind of needs that we have that are fulfilled by the Holy Spirit, it's very important to remember that he's with you always, permanently, and he indwells you. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you this morning for allowing us to come here together without distractions, that we can concentrate on what it is that your word is saying we know we have the Holy Spirit indwell in our hearts. And so we can relax now that we've been here and heard the word and read it. We can now relax knowing that the Holy Spirit is at work, that we don't perfect ourselves. We can't, but the Holy Spirit is in the process of helping us to be growing to maturity, growing in our understanding of your Son, growing in our love for you and for one another. And so we thank you for all that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, remember now, on Thursdays, we have Bible study at 6.30. I want to remind people, well, I, should, I reminded people on Thursday, too. A lot of people are used to coming on to Skype for Sunday. But, of course, that's not happening anymore. We're on video, live video. On Thursday, we'll continue to be on Skype because that's more interactive. Okay, so, um, so please come and join us if you can, 6.30. Also remember, a giving policy is that we don't put pressure on anybody to give. Because God does, and he tells us in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 that he loves the cheerful giver, that he wants us to do it freely. And so we give you every opportunity not to bother you, not to nag you, not to make you feel guilty, not to pass around a plate. Why? Because everyone's looking in the basket. Hey, you give more than I did. Oh, that person didn't put anything in, right? That's not, that's not it. Okay, freely. As we close today, too, because we are ambassadors for Christ, and I never take for granted that there's anybody listening to, everybody listening to this message is a believer in Christ yet. I want to give you the simplicity of the gospel, and it's very simple, really. The simplicity of the gospel is that every human being is born a sinner. As a matter of fact, we all became sinners the moment that Adam committed the first sin. He, as it were, doomed the human race to sinship. We're born that way. Bible says we're born dead in our trespasses and sins. And were nothing to happen, we would never have the ability to be with God forever, to be with him at all. And so the, the way this works is that God said, um, i got to do something, so I'm going to create this place called the Lake of Fire for those who don't do what is needed or believe, right? So anyway, there's a, there's a judgment, all right? and, and, and every unbeliever will be judged. That's the bad news. You might be sitting here and saying, well, the gospel means good news. I know that. But you see, the good news is something that, is, that solves that problem. God did. He loved you and me and everybody so much, and he wasn't willing that any person on earth would perish. And in order to carry out that in his love, he sent his son, God the Son, here to earth, born of a woman, God in the flesh, and he, his, his will that Jesus carried out 
was that Jesus would go to the cross and be the perfect sacrifice for all sins. And he did that. He bore all of our sins, everybody's sin in the world, in his body on the cross. And he died. And that means that 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 death is the perfect provision for all mankind, all sins. And then on the third day, God the Father raised him from the dead. That's the good news. But the good news continues because now, you see, we couldn't do anything about it. God did it. Now he says, here's what, here's what I'm asking. That you would simply hear that good news and believe it. There's no merit in that. There's nothing you really have to do. Uh, you have to hear good news and believe it. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe that you have a Savior. Believe that you're a sinner and you need a Savior. And Jesus died for you. And God the Father raised him from the dead. You believe that, you're saved. What does that mean? It means you will never be judged. You'll never go to the lake of fire. You'll never be condemned for your sins. It also means that God, quite the opposite, looks at you on the basis of you believing in his son, says, I declare that one righteous forever as far as I'm concerned. Not only that, but that instant he gives you eternal life. All his work. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. All right, let's close now in prayer once again. Father, we just ask this morning that, that we would uh, take to heart all that we've learned today, that we would realize the utmost importance of unbelievers hearing the gospel, and that we would, uh, we would do everything we can to put ourselves in a position to be able to preach the good news to them when the door opens. We rely on you, of course, and the Holy Spirit to do all the preparation. But help us to recognize those times when, we're, when there's an opening for us to preach the gospel that we've heard together this morning. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And with that, you're dismissed. Enjoy your Sunday.